0: To Hebrews chapter 10, we're continuing our series through the book of Hebrews, um, and we're, we're now up to chapter 10, which is and from verse 19, this is page 1208, if you're on a turquoise church Bible, or whatever page it is in your Bible, 1208, Hebrews 10, verse 19. And we will be hearing preaching from this passage from from Dab a little later on. But let's, let's hear the very words of God through his apostle. Let's hear God speaking. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly So the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning. After we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifices left for sins. Only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot who was treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and it was insulted the spirit of grace for we know him who said it is mine to avenge I will repay and again the Lord will judge his people it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God Remember those earlier days after you received the light, when you endured in, in great conflict, full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away your confidence, it will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he's promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure... And the one who shrinks back But we do not belong to those who shrink back And are destroyed But to those who have faith And are saved Praise God
1: Thank you Austin a very good evening to you all Everyone okay? Is it good to be here? Amen. So if you could open your Bibles again to Hebrews chapter 10. It's so good to look at God's Word together again, isn't it, this evening. So the book of Hebrews. It's very likely that this book was originally a message to a Hebrew church. So Jews who had converted from Judaism to Christianity... And now they're seriously considering turning back to Judaism, turning their backs on Christianity and turning back to Judaism. And the apostle is basically telling this Hebrew church that if they turn away from Christianity, they're turning away from Christ. So really, the apostle has been reminding this Hebrew church who Christ is, what Christ has done, what Christ is doing now, and what Christ will do. Who Christ is, what Christ has done, what Christ is doing now, and what Christ will do. And if our hearts ever grow cold towards Christ, I don't know, has that ever happened to you? When your heart seems maybe strangely cold towards Christ? One good thing we could do is read the book of Hebrews. Especially chapter one, isn't it? It really warms your heart. It reminds you who Christ is. And as we keep reading through the book of Hebrews, it reminds us what Christ has done, what Christ is doing now, and what Christ will do. So let's just remind ourselves very quickly who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? And most of this comes from just chapter one of the book of Hebrews. Who is Jesus? Well, firstly, Jesus is the Son of God. Secondly, Jesus is the heir of all things. So he owns everything. Thirdly, Jesus is creator of the universe. And then fourthly, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That's quite something, isn't it? So even just from those four things, it's like, why would you turn away from him, the one who's the son of God, who's the heir of all things, creator of the universe, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being? Fifthly, Jesus is king. We're told that he's seated on a throne, the majesty in heaven, isn't it? Sixthly, Jesus is greater than angels, Seventhly, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than Joshua, he's greater than the high priest, because Jesus is the great high priest, isn't he? And then tenthly, Jesus is the better sacrifice. He's better than the blood of bulls and goats that can't take away sin. So that is who Jesus is. In a way, we need a bit of a coffee break just after that, don't we? It's like, oh, whoa, stop a minute. Let me just take that in. Let's have, like, a time of prayer now. That is who Jesus is, isn't it? But what has Jesus done? What has Jesus done? Again, all from the book of Hebrews. From chapter 1, we're told that Jesus has spoken to us as God, isn't he? Jesus has come, God in the flesh, In the past, God spoke to us through the prophets, but now he's spoken to us through his son's name, whom he's appointed heir of all things. Jesus has mediated a new covenant, a new promise, a new agreement. He's going to write the law. He's going to write his words on our hearts and our minds. He's going to move us by his spirit to follow God's laws. Thirdly, Jesus has bled and died as a sacrifice for our sins. And then fourthly, Jesus has entered the most holy place. So that's heaven, the throne room of God. That's where Jesus is right now, isn't it? Jesus has entered the most holy place by his blood to obtain eternal redemption. That's what Jesus has done. So what is Jesus doing right now? What is Jesus doing now? Well, he's sustaining all things by his powerful word. What does it mean to sustain something? To keep everything going, isn't it? Because some people are thinking, is the world coming to an end? This, what do they call it? Pandemic, is it? People are thinking, is this going to bring about the end of the world, like a virus or an infection or a disease or something? No, it's not. It's Jesus who will bring the end of the world, is not it? He's the one who's keeping everything going. He's the one who's keeping our hearts beating now. I don't know, put your hand on your heart. I'll ask you to do something weird. I don't usually ask you to do this. If you're feeling a beat, that's because Jesus says so, isn't it? The reason why we're not floating about in space now is because Jesus says so. The reason why stars aren't falling from the sky, Jesus says so. He's holding everything together, all the atoms, all the neutrons, all the electrons. What have I missed out? Austin's a physicist, <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what they are, <laughs> but all, what I do know is Jesus is holding them all together, isn't he? He's sustaining all things by his powerful word. He's just speaking the word right now. Secondly, he's ruling and reigning as king of heaven. Nothing is out of his control. Jesus knew in 2020 that there would be a coronavirus, that it would start in December 2019 in China and it would spread all over the world. I don't know why he's allowed it to happen, but he's in control. He hasn't been taken by surprise, has he? And thirdly, he helps us when we're tempted. Jesus, who is God, the eternal son, became one of us for 33 years or so. So he knows what it's like to be tempted as a human being. Fourthly, he empathizes with us when we're weak. Again, Jesus is the God-man. There is a human body, a resurrected human body, in heaven right now. He understands, doesn't he? And then fifthly, he's able to save completely. Right now, Jesus is still saving all over the world. And that's the thought. Someone, well, many people have become Christians today, no doubt. As the word has been opened and preached all over the world, people have repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus saves completely from his throne in heaven. And then sixthly, Uh, Sorry, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him. And he intercedes for us. He intercedes for us. He brings us to the Father, and he's also praying for us. When we pray, we pray to God the Father through God the Son, don't we? And he's praying for us. And then what will Jesus do? So we're looking forward to the future. What will Jesus do? Well, he's coming again, isn't he? He is coming again to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And he's going to renew the heavens and the earth. He's going to renew the universe. He's going to bring about a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. And we sort of cry out, don't we, this evening, in light of everything that's going on in the world, come, Lord Jesus, come, don't we? So after all of that, after all of that, that glorious description of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he's doing now, what he will do, I find that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 39, the apostle seems to get a bit more practical. So I've sort of blown your hearts and your minds and your souls with deep theology here of who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing now, what he will do. Now, what should you do with your lives practically if all of this is true? If it is true about who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing now, what he will do, how should that affect your life? How should that affect your life? And I think his first point is, if you profess to believe everything that I've just told you about Jesus then you should confidently pray full of faith. That's the first practical point. If everything there is true about Jesus, then we should confidently pray full of faith. And we see this in verses 19 to 23, don't we? So if we go to Hebrews 10, this is 19 to 23. What do we read there? Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence... To enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. When you think of swerving, what you think of, I, don't know, I think about learning to ride a bike, Have you ever had this experience when you were learning to ride a bike and you would sort of swerve and wobble, wouldn't you? You'd be so nervous and you'd be so unsure and you'd always be looking down. That's what I used to do when I was learning to ride a bike. I'd be looking at my feet and my dad would say, no, look ahead. Don't look at your arms. Don't look at yourself. Don't look at your feet. Look ahead, isn't it? Sort of so nervous and so unsure. Well, we don't need to be like that when we pray. When we pray, we don't need to sort of be... Nervous and unsure, we can pray with confidence, like the hymn says, boldly I approach the eternal throne. Not with any sort of confidence in ourselves, but confidence in the blood of Jesus. So because of the blood of Jesus, I can say, Father in heaven, I come to you through the precious blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and by your spirit. We can pray with boldness and confidence, isn't it, In Jesus Christ. And it's wonderful what we read in Hebrews. Let us draw near. Can you see that in verse 22? And you know, that phrase appears seven times in the book of Hebrews. And it's almost like a bit of a key phrase to the book of Hebrews, that we can draw near to God. Because when you read Uh, The Old Testament, when you especially study the tabernacle, it seems as if there's a bit of a barrier or distance between human beings and a holy God. Do you find that? And then the apostle is telling these Jews who have converted to Christianity, who are thinking about converting back to Judaism, he's saying, you're going back to something really cheap. Look, with Christianity, you can actually draw near to God. Because when you think of the tabernacle, it gives you the impression that it's almost impossible to approach God. So I've got a bit of a picture of what the tabernacle might have looked like. So that's the tabernacle. And the most holy place would have been there, just in the back of this tent here. So that tent there is the tabernacle. And that there would have been the most holy place. So could you imagine trying to get in there? That's not an easy job, is it? First of all, you have to come through here, and then you have to have a sacrifice. So you've got the uh, burnt altar there for the sacrifice, and then you have to be sort of baptized or washed there in uh, the wash basin there, the sort of sea. And then you have to go through this curtain, and then there's another curtain then, until you get into the most holy place. And only the high priest could go into the most holy place once a year on the Day of Atonement. So here's a bit of a a zoom in. So that's what the inside of uh, the tabernacle looked like. So this room is the holy place. That room, the most holy place. And there, you've got the Ark of the Covenant or the mercy seat. That sort of symbolizes the throne of God. So symbolizing the presence of God. So could you imagine if we were able to go in a time machine, sort of back uh, sort of 4,000 years or whatever <laughs> in a time machine, and could you imagine if I, as a Gentile, just walked past everyone, and I just walked straight into the tabernacle and headed straight to the most holy place, People would be saying, what do you think you're doing? You're not even a Jew, you're a Gentile. I know. I said, but where's your sacrifice? Oh, I've got a sacrifice. Oh, it's not a bull, it's not a goat. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But where's your priest? You're not a high priest. Oh, but I've got a great high priest. I can enter the most holy place with boldness and confidence because of the blood of the Lamb of the blood of God, the eternal son. Such an image, isn't it? So heaven is the most holy place. And we can have boldness and confidence that our prayers really are entering into that throne room of God because of the blood of Jesus, because he is the perfect sacrifice and he is the perfect high priest. And in the tabernacle as well, that curtain there, was kind of like a big no-entry sign, wasn't it? And what was sort of woven onto the curtain, it was cherubim, wasn't it? With flashing swords. And we heard about that last Sunday morning, didn't we? What were the cherubim and flashing swords doing? They were stopping people from coming to the presence of God, from coming into the Garden of Eden, the mountain of God. So it's almost like a big no-entry sign. what happened when Jesus died on the cross that curtain was torn in two wasn't it from top to bottom a 60 foot high curtain as thick as my hand torn in two from top to bottom Jesus Christ has made a new and living way isn't that so exciting so that's the first point practically we can pray we can pray boldly and with confidence to the Eternal Father, because of Jesus. And then the second point: then, if we profess to believe all that the apostle has spoken about Jesus to be true, then we mustn't meet, a, mustn't uh, give up meeting together. So that should have a real practical effect on our lives, isn't it? If what the Apostle has spoken about Jesus is true, then we should meet together as brothers and sisters in Christ, doesn't it? And not give up doing that. And we see that in verses 24 and 25. What do we read there? Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's like, why are we here tonight? There are a million other things we could be doing tonight, is not there? Maybe some of you are wishing you were doing some of the million other things. But you're thinking, no, I'm here tonight because Jesus is true. I know who Jesus is. I know what he's done. I know what he's doing now. And I know what he will do. And that's why I want to meet with brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why I want to receive God's word. That's why I want to worship him with my brothers and sisters in Christ. But the sad thing is, these verses seem to tell us that not going to church can be a habit we can get into. Not going to church is a very easy habit to get into. Uh, Does anyone know how long it takes to form a habit? Six weeks, is that right? I've heard that it's six weeks. And how many days is six weeks? This is just a bit of an aside thing. Forty-two days, isn't that interesting? So in the Bible, sort of 40 days, 40 nights, isn't it? Six weeks, so maybe 40 days, 40 nights. That's how it longs to sort of form a hard bit, isn't it? So if you go sort of six weeks, not coming to a prayer meeting... It's very hard to start going again, isn't it? And we've seen that, haven't we? Someone stops coming for six weeks, very hard to get back because they've formed a habit. If you stop coming to church on a Sunday night for six weeks, very hard to start coming again then. If you stop coming to church at all for six weeks, very hard to start coming. Hard, but not impossible, is it? Nor impossible by the grace of God. But could you imagine if you started coming to a prayer meeting for six weeks? <laughs> could you imagine if you started coming to church for six weeks? That's a good habit that we formed then, isn't it? But why do we come to church? We come to meet with the living God. Because the living God lives among his people. He walks among his people. And what is the highlight of our gatherings, of our meetings... It's when the Bible is opened up and read, when we have Psalm 84 read to us, when we have Hebrews 10 read to us, and when the Word of God is taught for us. That is almost like a high point of the meeting, isn't it? So we come to church to receive, mainly to receive from God, don't we? Because sometimes you think, oh, you need to go to church to do stuff, isn't it? Yeah, that is true. We do go to church to serve. But first and foremost, we go to church to receive from Jesus, don't we? And when we receive the word of Christ, then we're equipped to serve, to do good deeds, as we read in verse 24. We do the good deeds when we've been equipped, when we receive God's word. That's what we read in Hebrews chapter 4. This is, a, uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, isn't it? So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. So what should be the effect of every sermon, every Bible teaching we receive? It should be like, I just want to serve now, isn't it? We should be on fire every time we hear God's word being read and taught. It's like, oh, show me where the toilets are, isn't it? Give me those rubber gloves now or whatever, isn't it? We just want to serve. And also, we should be encouraged when we receive God's word, shouldn't we? What do we read in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead... And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, uh, Timothy. Preach the word, be prepared, in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So we should leave here tonight also encouraged. And I hope we have been encouraged as we've thought about who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing now, and what he will do. Isn't it? That's what we should sort of. Ah, even if I got nothing out of tonight, yeah, I was reminded who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's doing now, and what he will do, and that's encouraged my heart. But we don't only get uh, encouraged and equipped from the pulpit, do we? We we can do that in our conversations. We can do that in our conversations. When we come together. Uh, I heard a a great um, story about um, uh, a friend of mine. Uh, One Thursday evening, they had uh, the youth meeting in the church. And uh, he turned up, and he'd had a really busy day. And then he looked to his friend, Mike, and he said, I'm just absolutely exhausted. And he said, Mike, what is the gospel? And he turned to him and he said, Christ died for sinners. And he rose from the dead to give us new life. He said, yeah. And Christ died for you, and he died for me. And he rose for me, and he rose for you to give us new life. Let's go and tell the gospel to these young people coming here. And that's sometimes maybe what we need to do. Maybe in Jolly Tots on Tuesday morning, maybe some of us might turn up You're like tired or maybe not really up for it. Sometimes we need to sort of remind ourselves, oh, let's remind ourselves what the gospel is. or maybe for blast and origin and excite, explore holiday club. It's like, oh, "I'm just feeling tired. I just don't feel up for this." or discouraged or maybe embittered, even. What do we need to do? Remind ourselves of the gospel, even being on the door, serving tea and coffee, or cleaning the church, isn't it, Whatever the task. We need to be reminded of the gospel. The third uh, practical thing. So the first practical thing was pray with confidence, isn't it? The second practical thing is go to church, isn't it? Don't give up meeting together. The third practical thing is if you profess to believe what I've told you about Jesus is true then stop deliberately sinning. Stop deliberately sinning. That's what we see in verses 26 to 30. What do we read there? Hebrews 10 verses 26 to 30. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, they are strong words, aren't they? They are hard words, Hebrews 10, verses 26 to 31. But when you read those words, I don't know about you, when you read verse 26 especially, do you sort of think, okay, if I deliberately go on sinning, does that mean I will lose my salvation? Is that what verse 26 says? If a Christian deliberately keeps on sinning, will they lose their salvation? Well, the answer is no, because of verse 14. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. What do we read there? Hebrews 10, verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So, it still doesn't answer the question, does it? If a professing Christian Keeps on deliberately sinning, so they don't repent, they don't sort of feel sorry for it, they just go on sinning, not repenting. What does that mean? Well, it just means that they're not a Christian, quite simply, isn't it? So, whatever happened to you when you were sort of eight, nine, ten, eleven years old, or whatever, that card that you signed when you uh, put your hand up in a meeting, or when you went up to the front, or whatever it was. sure if that was real, if you keep on deliberately sinning. You clearly haven't been washed by the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Because a genuine Christian is being made holy, isn't it? That is progress. God is holy. That's what we see there, isn't it, in Hebrews 10 uh, verses 26 uh, to Thirty-one. God is holy, and we should be holy. Yeah, we have freedom and confidence to approach Him, but He's also holy, isn't He? God is good, but He's not safe, is He? That's one of the Chronicles of Narnia, isn't it? Where they talk about um, Aslan, isn't it? Um, or is He is He safe, isn't it? The little girl was asking. Uh, no, he's not safe. He's good. He's not safe, isn't it? Remember that he's God Almighty. Have you heard that phrase? He's God Almighty, not God Almighty. <laughs> I remember someone telling me once, They said, oh, me and God, we, we've got a, an agreement. Um, if, he leave, if, if he leaves me alone, I leave him alone. I said, well, you don't treat God like that. He is holy. He's not just some sort of mate, is he? But look at verse 29 of uh, Hebrews chapter 10 again. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, has treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace? Why do people go to hell? Do they go to hell for deliberately sinning? No, people go to hell for rejecting Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. People go to hell and say, Jesus, the cross, the work of the Holy Spirit is all rubbish. That's why people go to hell. And on the road to hell, there is Jesus Christ bleeding and dying on a cross. On everyone's road to hell, there is Jesus Christ hanging on a cross, bleeding and dying, and the Holy Spirit pointing to him, saying, trust in him trust in him, but what do people do? They push him over and they trample over him on the way to hell anyone who goes to hell have trampled over Jesus Christ to get there it's quite a thought, isn't it? and then, lastly then The last practical point. If we profess to believe that what we've been told about Jesus is true, then we will hold on loosely to our earthly possessions and keep our eyes on our better and lasting possessions. So we'll hold loosely to our sort of earthly, um, sort of temporary possessions And we will keep our eyes on our better and lasting possession. And we see that in verses 32 to 39, don't we, of Hebrews 10. What do we read there? Remember those earlier days, after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison And joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere. So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For, just in a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. What's the lesson there? Hold on loosely to our earthly possessions and keep our eyes on the eternal and lasting possessions that we have in Jesus Christ. Because even non-Christians say, don't they, oh, you can't take it with you. Even non-Christians understand this. Hold on loosely to your earthly possessions, isn't it? Let's be honest, it is hard, isn't it? It's hard because we do want nice things here and now, don't we? Let's all be honest, we do want nice things here and now. And there's nothing wrong with that but we shouldn't get too upset if we can't afford it. I said, I would love um, a a sports car, say, for example, but I can't afford it. For whatever reason, God doesn't allow me to have a big, fast, posh, new car or whatever, isn't it? And then I shouldn't get upset about it, should I? I've got something even better. If we can't afford it then we shouldn't get upset about it. Or if we can afford it, and we do buy it, then we shouldn't worship it, should we? Whatever the earthly possession is. Something for the house, the car, whatever. And if we can afford it, we shouldn't get too upset if it gets damaged. So that's just earthly and temporary. I've got a better, lasting, and eternal possession in Jesus, haven't I? And if we can afford it, then we shouldn't boast about it either, should we? Our earthly possessions. But how can we live like that? We should always remember what the future holds. I said, I am going to paradise. I'm going to Eden. (laughs) But without the possibility of ever sinning or ever being tempted. When will I go there? When Christ returns And I should think, and I'm upset because maybe I can't afford a nice car, nice house, nice clothes or whatever. Or maybe something happens to my car, house or clothes. What should we think? Oh, I've got better and lasting possessions, isn't it? That is the big theme of the Bible, isn't it? Don't be earthly. Think about what you've got in heaven that will last forever. Let's close with Philippians 3, this is 18 to 21. Great words, aren't they? For, as I've often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come.